submitted. We'll hear argument next. Spectators are admonished to remain silent until you leave the courtroom. The court is still in session. We'll hear argument next to number 94834, North Star Steel Company versus Charles Thomas and Crown Cork and Steel Company versus United Steelworkers. Mr. Pearson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court is once again confronted with the task of having to borrow uh, a statute of limitations to fill in in a, another federal statute uh, for the situation where the Congress has failed to provide a limitations period. In this particular instance, uh, the statute is the Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act, or WARN. In creating WARN, the uh, Congress took a right which already existed under the National Labor Relations Act for unionized employees, that is, the right to advance notice of impending plant closings or mass layoffs. First, standardized the notice period to 60 days, and then extended that right of notice to non-unionized employees. The ultimate goal behind both the notice provision in the National Labor Relations Act and in WARN is to provide employees with the opportunity to do something to lessen the adverse effects brought upon them by this severe economic dislocation. The fact that WARN follows the NLRA model has resulted in the regulations which have been drafted to govern WARN uh, coming to a substantial extent from the National Labor Relations Act and has also resulted in numerous court decisions which look to the National Labor Relations Act to try to fill in the interstices of WARN. This Court in the past has counseled that in these type of barring situations, while there is generally a presumption in favor of state law barring, when a federal source clearly provides a closer analogy and where the federal policies at stake and litigation practicalities make that federal source a significantly more appropriate vehicle than the borrowing ought to come from the federal source. In this particular instance, with respect to the Warren Act, we believe that you have the National Labor Relations Act, which is by far a closer analogy than any which exists at state law. And we also believe that the National Labor Relations Act both furthers the underlying purpose of the Warren Act that particular statute of limitations, and also would tend to avoid the kind of form shopping and collateral litigation which would be inevitable if state law borrowing goes along with the Warren Act. We really haven't borrowed very often from the National Labor Relations Act, have we? No. This Court did borrow from the National Labor Relations Act, for example, in 1983 in Del Costello. Yes. But it has — this Court — until fairly recently, simply didn't borrow very often from any federal statute <laughs> until the last 10 or 12 years. 
I suppose you're going to get to this at some point, but will you comment specifically on why the, the, uh, the, the NLRA is uh, a, a better source, uh, is subject to a better analogy than the Pennsylvania statute for payment of, of back wages do? Yeah. The, the fact that under the National Labor Relations Act, the, one of the things that's going on is a balancing of interests, that is, the interests of employees in getting notice and then ultimately in seeking some type of benefit to aid them in the event of a plant closing or a mass layoff. And what the Warren Act is attempting to do is almost precisely the same. I mean, ultimately, there are differences to be sure, but ultimately the purpose behind both is to give employees notice so they can do something to help protect themselves against the loss of their job. But, but the notice to the National Labor Relations Board is to invoke the board's procedure so that it can preserve the bargaining context over the short period of time when collective bargaining agreements often exist. It seems to me that's quite inapplicable to a money judgment, uh, to a money claim for an employee. True, the employee needs it as fast as he or she can get it uh, for retraining, etc. But it, it seems to me that this is much more, frankly, like the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, cause of action under federal law. It seems to me that's the analogy. Well, both under the National Labor Relations Act and under the Warren Act, it, it seems to me that the same goal is being pursued, which is not simply a collective bargaining goal under the National Labor Relations Act. I mean, yes, there is a value in having employer the employer talk to employee organizations, but there is an end in mind. And the end in mind is to provide the opportunity to ameliorate the effects of a plant closing or layoff, which is precisely what Warren is doing. The FLSA does nothing more than say, the law says that when you work overtime, you get paid time and a half. And guess what? If your employer doesn't pay you time and a half, you have a right to get the money that you earned. It has very little to do with this notice notion and the use of, a not use of the notice to somehow try to buffer the economic harm that's going to occur to uh, employees when they lose their job. I, I may have mm. jumped ahead. It, it, it's not clear to me that um, if we agree that a federal statute should apply, that we should make the determination of which statute uh, at this level rather than remanding. Uh, but the analysis does seem to be tangled at, all, at almost every juncture. I, I suppose we look in part to how close the analogy is to the National Labor Relations Act in deciding whether to take state or federal law. But if we do that, then I think we probably also should look at the Fair Labor Standards Act. Well, I believe the Court ought to look at all those acts. Again, though, the right that — there is a right that currently exists under the National Labor Relations Act, which is almost identical to the right which Warren gave to non-unionized employees, which is a right to get notice of a plant closing, to prevent an employer from simply saying, on Monday morning, the plan is closed so long. But but that's, the NLRA, that's pursuant to a collective bargaining agreement under the NLRA? No, it's, it's, it's pursuant to — it arises from the Act itself. The Act has been interpreted to require effects bargaining. That is, the union should bargain — you say the Act, you mean the NLRA? The, excuse me, the, the NLRA. Requires effects bargaining. The NLRA requires the union and the employer to get together and to negotiate about the impact on employees when a plant closes, for example. In order to have effective effects bargaining, there has to be notice of the plant closing. I mean, if the employer comes in, in my example, on Monday and says the plant's closed, 
it, it minimizes the ability to have effective bargaining. So under the National Labor Relations Act for unionized employees, there is this notice right. There is this right to learn about the plant closing before it happens. But that's to facilitate collective bargaining. But, but to facilitate collective bargaining to what end? Ultimately, the, the hope is, although not necessarily the expectation, the hope is that that collective bargaining process will result in something happening which will benefit the employees who are going to suffer from the economic dislocation. Well, it depends, too, on what level of generality you're talking about. You can go back to the findings in 1935 and say the end is labor peace. But that doesn't really help you much in this case. No, but in an effects bargaining situation, what's crystal clear is that when the union sits down with the management, what the union is seeking is some type of aid for the employees that are going to lose their jobs. Severance pay, retraining, perhaps some kind of concession to keep the plant open. But I mean, it's a very focused but, inquiry. Yeah, but what they're going to get is basically consensual, whereas here what you get is by statute. No, what, what we would maintain is what you get here is consensual, too. The, the, the notice goes out the under Warren, and the employees, if they're represented by a union through their union representative, if they're not represented by a union, themselves individually or collectively, because they have the, the, the non-represented workers, the non-union workers, have Section 7 rights. They have a right to act collectively. They may elect a representative. They may go in a group. And what they attempt to do at that point, and the whole purpose of, of Warren, is to, is to start to take action to protect themselves. One thing they can do is approach the employer and try to get some type of consensual understanding from if the employer. If we focus on those employees, the ones who aren't organized, there's a concern that might not be present if we were thinking of the union. So lay Del Castello to one side. This is a very short limitation period. If you look at the NLRA, it's six months to file a charge, right, which is an administrative charge, rather easier than filing a court complaint. Think of unorganized employees, the ones you were saying could go, go along, and the necessity of coming into a court with a federal complaint in six months, isn't that uh, extraordinarily short? Justice Ginsburg, I don't believe so. This court in Del Costello held that the six-month period under the National Labor Relations Act applied to actions where an employee is suing his or her union and the employer um, arising out of the alleged breach of the duty of fair representation on the part of the union and the breach of the collective bargaining agreement. In that particular situation, it seems to me, that's even a more daunting prospect for an individual employee. It doesn't have the benefit of masses of people, his co-employees, who are being laid off. He doesn't have the benefit, perhaps, if he's a non-union employee and has union employees next to him, of the benefit of the union doing something. He's taken on the employer and the union. And this Court has held in that particular circumstance six months is enough time. Similarly, that was all tied into the, it's in the midst of bargaining. Well, Here, you can't make that claim well, to the same extent. You certainly can't make it for the people who are not represented by the union. Well, the th filing a 301 action in court, while it clearly has an impact later on the collective bargaining relationship, because collective bargaining agreements are interpreted through 301 action, it doesn't have a direct impact on the, the, the ongoing collective bargaining process. I mean, it is a suit by an employee who says, I don't like the way my union represented me with respect to my rights under the collective bargaining agreement. And it's different. Not only that, there is experience now under the Warren Act, and there have been, there has been a substantial amount of litigation filed within the six-month period. 
it is. Well, in some cases are easy and, and some are not. I mean, the, the, the contingencies that, uh, upon which the obligation may arise uh, can be very difficult to untangle. Uh, and, and so the, 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 the ease in some cases, it doesn't seem to me, is, is a good reason to assume ease in all. Let me go back to another aspect of the analogy. One thing the NLRA does not do uh, is to provide that if you fail to warn, you've got to pay 60 days' wages. Uh, and what we're dealing with is the case in which the, um, the policy of the Act, in fact, is not realized. The warning is not given. Uh, and at that point, it seems to me, the employee is in exactly the same position as the employee who has not gotten paid for the last 60 days that he worked. He's owed 60 days' wages. And uh, why, for that reason, isn't the analogy with the, with the um, uh, wage claim statute, and, and I will say a state wage claim statute, the strongest analogy? Well, First of all, Justice Souter, you are entitled, an employee would be entitled under the National Labor Relations Act to back pay in that situation. So in other words, if you have two identical... Yeah, but he's, the NLRA doesn't have any formula to the effect that if you, if you fail, it's equal, the failure is equal to 60 days' wages. It is... It, is it? No, maybe, but it, it, it can be greater. It can be greater or it can be lesser, depending on how many depending days... Depending on the agreement. Well, no, depending on how many days' wages were actually lost. Yeah. But the, but the concept is that in both the NLRA situation and in the Warren Act situation, back pay for a failure to give notice is a remedy. The problem with the Fair Labor Standards Act is that this whole notion of trying to find an analogy, as difficult as that notion is, and it is a difficult notion, that the, it seems to me that it's premised on, on, the, on the concept that you want to find an analogous statute because if you find an analogous statute, there is some thought that the Congress may have balanced the same sorts of interests. I mean, that — otherwise it makes no sense to look for an Well, analogy. maybe the thought is cruder than that. Maybe the thought is we've been saying this long enough, so Congress uh, may, may simply be assumed uh, to assume that we will follow the, uh, the rule that we look for the analogy. Uh, and if the <coughs> — excuse me, if the analogy is there, that's the end of it. Well, yeah, but you have to define what — we mean by analogy. Yeah, right. and, and a moment ago you were avoiding the analogy by referring to it as back pay. Another way of characterizing it is simply to say, under warn, um, uh, you've, you've got to go on paying for 60 days after you give the notice. Uh, and if you give notice in time, you're going to get 60 days of work out of that. If you don't give notice in time, you may not get the 60 days of work, but you still got to give 60 days of pay. Uh, so instead of being a back pay kind of statute, what it is is, in effect, a guarantee of work or payment in, in, in the absence of work. And so it's not like a back pay statute. Uh, it's like a, a statute guaranteeing the payment of wages, e.g., the Pennsylvania Wage Collection Act. In the Pennsylvania Wage Collection Act, those wages are earned. People work. The wage payment and collection. If they're not earned in this case, it's because the employer does not give the notice. So that if, if in fact the employer says, well, this is a, this is, this, this case does not cry out for the same treatment, it is only because the employer has violated the statute and that's why it doesn't cry out for the same treatment. Indeed, it cries out for at least as, as equitable a treatment. It's not, with all due respect, it's not necessarily linked to whether folks work or don't work. For example, the plant's going to close on September 1st, no matter what. If you give notice 60 days before September 1st, you don't owe anything. 
If you don't, if you give it 30 days, then you owe 30 days. The, the, the time people work on the time that they actually earn money is not dependent on the notice. The 60-day back pay remedy is, is a damage remedy, not for wages which have been earned but which are not paid. They are damages flowing from a violation of the Act. That is, that the employer didn't do what the employer should have done. But that those, is a base. Those, those 60 days of wages or 60 days that, uh, the, the, that penalty is in lieu of wages which the employer could have paid in response for labor if the employer had given notice at the time the statute says he's supposed to. It is not. With is, isn't that correct? I mean, am no. I factually wrong on that? Maybe I am. No, well, I, I think I don't know if it's factually wrong. I think it's conceptually not correct. In that, what it is is a, is a damage, is a liquidated damage remedy for failure to give notice. It's not in lieu of wages which have been earned or which would have been earned had notice been given. The Congress ha- came up with a liquidated damage. Let provision. me. May I ask it this way? If the employer gives notice 60 days before closing. The plant functions for the 60 days and closes. The employer pays the wages for the people who work during that period, and that's the end of the matter. Warren has nothing more to say. That's correct. If the employer doesn't give the notice until 30 days before the closing, the Act says to the employer, you have got to behave by paying wages just as if you had given notice at the proper time, which means you've got to pay another, (coughs) excuse me, 60 days of wages, i.e., 30 of those for, 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 uh, for wages actually earned and 30 for not earned. But it's, it's, isn't it, therefore, if that's the way the, the, the statute functions, isn't it fair to say uh, that this statute creates a wage claim in order to enforce uh, the notice requirement? This may just be dancing on the head of a... Well, it's characterization. Isn't that that a fair characterization? No, and and my answer to that would be no, because as soon as you say it's in lieu of wages, which is what you just said, as soon as as you conceptualize that that 30 days damages is in lieu of wages, that means it's not earned. That means it's not like, at its core, it it is not like the wage payment and collection law. Warren is a notice statute. The FLSA and the Pennsylvania Wage and, and Collection Law. I hope it's nothing I said. <laughs> I knew I wasn't doing especially well, but. <laughs> well, I was pretty sleepy, though. Yeah, I know. Th- th- thank you very much. <laughs> um, so that it, it, it is a difference between a statute which says workers are entitled to get the money they actually earn by their labor versus a statute, a notice statute, which says if you, if to an employer, if you don't give notice, you have to pay damages. And we're going to calculate those damages because we don't want a very long, drawn-out process. That's one of the, the, the elements of the under, WARN Act. Under the Pennsylvania law, suppose there's a disciplinary layoff. We had a case like that last year. And the, and the employer says, you go, you're, to 10 days you're suspended. And the employee then wins that case. Wouldn't there be a claim under the guarantee, the wage state law, to say uh, that my wages, at least there are some state laws, we had one last year, that covered precisely that situation? The, the Pennsylvania law would, would not cover that situation, would not give the employee wages for that period well, of Well, what would? Is there no state law remedy if, if it, this is a wrongful layoff for discipline? 
The, is there no state law claim that such an employee would have? Let's assume for a moment that it's not a union employee with a just cause clause in the collective bargaining agreement, because if it was a union employee with such a clause, they could file a grievance and they could get paid for that. Let's assume a non-union employee, Pennsylvania is an employee, is an employment at will state, and in that particular setting, the, what the court would say is that the employee had no right to continue to be employed. Then there would be no claim. There would be no claim. Yeah. There would be no claim. But there could be a claim under some state laws would protect workers. Yes. Yeah. My understanding is that there are certain state laws for payment of wages which include sort of these wrongful either discharge or wrongful suspension notions, but they're relatively rare. But that would be a case where on your theory you're not getting paid for wages that you earn by being on the premises and doing the job and still would come under a state statute that provides for that, that is correct, Justice Ginsburg. But again, conceptually, that would be a damage provision. It might come within the statute, but it's, it's different. The, the, the basis of the Pennsylvania Wage Payment and Collection Law and the Fair Labor Standards Act, putting the penalty provisions in the Fair Labor Standards Act to one side for a moment, is the employees have earned this money. They've worked for it, and they, and they haven't been, been paid it. And so these statutes give the employees a right to get the money they have actually earned by virtue of their labors. And that is different from the Warren Act, which is a notice statute. The reason why the National Labor Relations Act, at least seems to us to be much more analogous, is it has as an overlay, admittedly it's a fairly narrow band, but it has as an overlay this notice right. And when, if the Court goes to look for an analogy, it seems to us that the analogy the Court ought to be looking for is a notice statute, because it is — Do I understand correctly this, the, the law that if we say your argument is plausible, and then you say the analogy to the, the state guaranteed uh, wage payment law or to the Fair Labor Standards, those are also plausible. But for you to win, you have to show that your analogy is not just as close and not just closer, but clearly closer, significantly more appropriate. So if we're in equipoise on that, or even if we find a preponderance, you lose. You have to come up with the equivalent of clear and convincing. As long as this Court continues to adhere to the presumption that state law barring ought to be favored, that is correct. And you, but one of your arguments, ultimate arguments, is maybe we shouldn't have that presumption. It, it, it doesn't — I don't think in this particular case the Court need reach that far, but I don't think in light of what's happened over the last 10 or 12 years it makes a whole lot of sense anymore, frankly. Is that in part because we now have many more federal statutes from which to borrow? That is — it is in part because of that. It is in part because the enunciated basis underlying the presumption is that Congress looks at what this Court does, and in the past when Congress looked at what this Court did, it saw that it always borrowed from the state. And so when Congress didn't put a statute of limitations into a federal statute, you should assume that the Congress assumed that there would be state law borrowing. Given what's happened in the last 12 years, not only the decisions of this Court in Del Costello and Agency Holdings and LAMF, but also the fact that in 1990 the Congress itself decided that it didn't much like state law borrowing, at least prospectively, um, to sit here today and say, geez, there's, this, there's a lot of vitality to this state law borrowing rule, uh, seems wrong. But now shouldn't, it, shouldn't the very change in 1990 make us cautious to, for this, uh, from now on, there's this default provision, and it's long, it's four years. So shouldn't that make us very cautious about reaching back for the time before we had that, for 
and change what that regime was? The legislative history behind the 1990 enactment suggests that the reason why the Congress didn't make that retroactive was because it didn't wish to upset settled expectations with respect to statutes of limitation. Well, the settled expectation would be what uh, our case law was, clearly closer, significantly more appropriate. We would be unsettling that Well, no, I th- my reading of, of what the legislative history suggests is that when they talked about settled expectations, they were talking about the fact that for numerous federal statutes over the years, it had, there's become settled expectations as to what the statute of limitations ought to be. And to, to apply the 1990 Act retroactively would be to say, for example, in the Lanth case in theory, you have one in three years, and people are now out there and have been for it's a relatively short period, for three or four years, operating on a one in three year assumption if, of course, it was passed in 90, so this is not a good analogy, but you, you wouldn't want to go back and, and undo that, because there are settled expectations about what the statute should be. And so that's the reason they didn't make it retroactive. That's not to say that because they didn't make it retroactive, that doesn't mean that the Congress didn't understand that we'd continue along on this borrowing course. But it, but it does seem to me to suggest that the Congress was aware of what the tests were that had been enunciated by this Court in the decisions prior to 1990. In fact, there is a — I don't think you can call it more than a snippet of legislative history, but there is a snippet of legislative history in one of the House reports which says that the Congress recognizes that from that point forward, um, the borrowing was going to be done on the basis of whichever state or federal statute was most analogous. doesn't seem to incorporate any type of presumption in favor of state law borrowing. But is, um, is there is — there, uh, that's what I wonder. I mean, isn't there another reason for state law that, that it's sort of like the civil code? I mean, states tend to have categories of things. They have sort of uh, statute of limitations applied to dozens of statutes like the civil code does, and they're in the business of trying to categorize. Is this more like a tort, like a contract? Is it the civil code or the penal code or which code? Well, the federal government just isn't like that. And, and, and so initially you, you, uh, uh, you'd have a much harder time if you, if you throw every statute of limitations up for grabs. Rather, uh, we look to the civil code, we look to the state originally, you see, because that was their business, applying statutes of limitations from the state to federal and state causes of action. The problem, of course, is in many federal statutes like this one, there, there are no real analogs at the state level. This is sort of un, unknown at, at common law. It's not the sort of thing I think there, there are now maybe four or five state plant closing laws, which means there are 45 states that don't have them. Um, there's not a lot of experience in dealing with these multi-state types of statutes as compared to what the state normally does, which deals with causes of action which, they, which fall within the, the, the boundaries of, of the particular state. And but, I mean, every, every federal statute, you should look to federal law if that's the criterion. I mean, it's that, always obviously better to have one federal law for a federal cause of action. Uh, but we, we've never done that. Well, that, I would not argue that, that this Court has said that is the sole criterion, but this Court has said in articulating its test that one, one of the criteria. Yes. Is this a federal statute that applies nationwide? No, no. One of that's a, that's a criterion that doesn't. Not, no, but what, what, what I was suggesting is, do anything. Is, is that one of the criteria is a desire for uniformity to avoid form shopping and collateral litigation. And that is true that whenever you adopt from a federal statute, that takes care of that particular problem. But that is, that's, that's one factor. But it, it is a factor. And it is a factor which would exist each time you barred from. It's not a factor in deciding whether this particular federal statute has some special reason for picking a federal statute of limitation. Every federal statute has that reason. 
So, you, you know, the factors you should pick should be distinctive, and that is never distinctive. No, but that, that is a factor which follows upon trying to pick the closest analogy. And if you find that the, in this case, for example, the National Labor Relations Act is, is a far closer analogy than anything available to state law, then, then you look at, at the other factors, and that would indeed weigh in favor of adopting it. may be a closer analogy, but, but not, not because it's national. I, I didn't mean to suggest it was closer because it was national. What I meant to suggest was uniformity it creates a uniform standard across the nation and thus minimizes the form shopping aspect. To the extent that I have time left, I'd like to reserve it. Very well, Mr. Pearson. Mr. Gold will hear from you. Chief Justice, and may it uh, please uh, the Court. If I could begin with uh, Del Costello, it seems to me uh, helpful to, uh, to do so. As Justice Ginsburg uh, uh, pointed out, Del Costello was not simply a situation uh, dealing with abstractions, uh, the choice uh, that was seen there in determining how to deal with those hybrid suit challenges to arbitration awards or grievance uh, uh, settlements was somewhere between uh, 20 days, three months, uh, six months, and nine months, and the court was very concerned in reaching its eventual conclusion to look at the range of choices uh, that uh, were suggested as uh, clear analogies in both the uh, state and federal level. Here, uh, we're dealing with uh, a uh, uh, mandatory wage standard or labor standard statute that generates uh, a uh, quite straightforward uh, damage action for failures uh, to act, and only a straightforward uh, court damage action. Why does the union have standing to challenge it, Mr. Gold? The uh, uh, statute is uh, quite clear in giving uh, the union standing, uh, associational standing, to uh, seek such liability, uh, and uh, uh, that is the basis. We believe that Congress in this kind of situation plainly has the constitutional authority uh, to provide such associational uh, standing. Uh, I have uh, a, a dual obligation, uh, t uh, however, uh, I'm also here on behalf of the North Star plaintiffs who are unrepresented, uh, and uh, obviously in that case uh, you have an action by a group of individuals, uh, uh, each of whom plainly has uh, standing to pursue uh, the remedy that is provided, uh, the monetary remedy provided uh, uh, to uh, them. I would Emphasize, I know that uh, it is uh, not waivable that the, the standing issue is not one uh, that to this point has uh, uh, been pursued. Uh, it may well be the subject of a petition someday. Uh, in terms of uh, the kind of situation we have here, 
uh, it seems to us that it's important to note uh, two things. One, uh, while uh, the petitioners go back and forth, there is a norm, a federal rule, and uh, the norm is that state statutes are borrowed uh, unless uh, that would frustrate federal policy or is at odds with the purpose or operation of uh, the federal law. And secondly, uh, that, as I've indicated, this kind of uh, cause of action for failure to provide wages, uh, to provide uh, uh, employment, uh, payment for employment or employment foregone, is uh, a quite straightforward claim of the kind that the law uh, has dealt with and that state law deals with uh, normally by a range of statute of limitations which balance the needs of the plaintiff and the interests of the law and the needs of uh, the defendant in an area of uh, two to four or five years. That's what the gamut of state statutes that were uh, uh, suggested here would provide. So far as we are aware and so far as the petitioners uh, have shown uh, a state law with a six-month statute of limitation for this kind of employee claim uh, is all but unheard of. Uh, secondly, we believe that uh, the law in this court is far more stable than uh, the petitioners have suggested. Uh, their argument, in our view, is really a, uh, a one-case argument. Uh, it's agency holding court versus Mallory Duff, uh, the RICO uh, case. Aside from that, uh, this court has uh, uh, two uh, lines of uh, authority. One, state law applies. Uh, two, with regard to implied uh, or common law causes of action that come out of or are brigaded with a federal statute which uh, uh, has an express statute of limitation, uh, the federal law uh, uh, provides the uh, uh, the rule. Mr. Gold, su suppose that uh, the Pennsylvania or a state statute uh, in a case involving Warren uh, is really, we think, on all fours with, say, the Fair Labor Standards Act statute. Uh, the statutes serve precisely the same function, have, have uh, almost the same types of provision. Just suppose that. Uh, would there be any reason in that case for us to say that we would borrow the federal statute? Your Honor, uh, under our existing jurisprudence. Yeah, uh, uh, we note at the end of our uh, brief as a final argument that if there was a federal uh, law barring rule, if you looked at all possible analogies, uh, uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act and the Portal to Portal Act are very, very close analogies indeed. I think that the problem is that the petitioners are uh, awfully cavalier about the unsettling effect 
of uh, uh, such a change on the decided cases, uh, uh, except if you're going to go back to a regime of prospective overruling, uh, uh, the uh, cases, the 1983 cases, the other cases, uh, would have to be revisited if you were to change from a state law presumption with these narrow exceptions to a federal uh, borrowing regime in general. The, 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 the fact that there is a federal statute that parallels, say, most of the state statutes from which we would borrow would not be, a, say, a special exception for escaping from our presumption? I, uh, if uh, uh, that, that could be done, uh, I uh, am not here to argue for uh, the uh, overall uh, uh, virtue of state borrowing. Uh, you know, if, we were in, if we were at square one, uh, our only interest is that uh, the uh, search for the balance of interest in policies uh, looks to the balance of interest that goes into statutes of limitation, not as petitioners would have it, uh, looking for uh, a norm somewhere, anywhere, uh, that looks like uh, uh, this norm without regard to what kind of uh, enforcement system or what the purposes and policies behind uh, the norm would be. So I, I could not argue to you that uh, the state law presumption or basic borrowing rule is of the essence to federal jurisprudence. I would only argue that it is uh, — it has been established by this Court as the norm. It is read into uh, uh, federal statutes uh, as uh, the intent of Congress, except in narrow circumstances, and it produces rational statutes of limitations uh, in this context, whereas the suggestion of NLRA borrowing does not. Uh, beyond that, I can only say, as has been pointed out, that we're dealing with a wasting resource here, uh, starting for any statute after 1990. There is now a residual federal rule. And against that background, the question of revising the basic standard and unsettling those matters which have been settled, some of which drive a great deal of litigation, like 1981 and 1983, may be a higher cost than uh, is warranted in this case, where the state statutes really are very close to the most analogous uh, federal statute, which is uh, the Fair Labor Standards uh, Act. Could we say um, that what's essential to your position in this case is that we reject the six-month NLRA period. Right. For the rest, it's in one sense academic because you'd meet any other conceivable limitation period, whether federal or state. Right. And I, I, I do think that when we have the discussion of the kind we do here about uh, forum shopping and uh, complexities, uh, uh, lawyers and clients uh, should read the law books and do know uh, the basic uh, 
statute of limitations, and it is uh, the rare case uh, one hopes that these nice questions of perfect characterization uh, uh, come up. That doesn't mean that this Court can avoid those nice questions, but the essential point is precisely uh, the one uh, you've made, Justice Ginsburg, from our perspective, when you look at this kind of claim, uh, we ought to be found to have brought this Warnack case timely uh, in just over a year, uh, no matter whether it's a state borrowing rule or uh, a federal borrowing rule. The NLRA analogy uh, just doesn't fit because, uh, as this court pointed out in Reed, and it would seem to us that it's difficult to come up with two cases that are closer uh, in terms of the conceptual question of when you uh, go to NLRA borrowing, than this case uh, uh, and Reed, the fact that there is an overlap between the uh, NLRA norm and another federal statutory norm uh, is not decisive. That isn't what this court means uh, when it talks about looking to the policies and purposes of uh, the statute. 8B1A of the National Labor Relations Act covers a far greater fraction of uh, uh, Landrum Griffin Title I 101 cases than the NLRA provisions cover uh, with regard uh, to warn. And Reed uh, quite rightly says uh, that that isn't the test. The test is uh, the policies that are peculiarly relevant to determining the proper statute of limitations. The NLRA statute, as this court explained in Del Costello and again in Reed, uh, is uh, a statute of limitation that has to do with protecting the formation and operation of collective bargaining agreements and uh, private settlement through grievance arbitration uh, and to furthering stable, ongoing bargaining uh, relationships. Uh, it's not easy for me to uh, uh, face up to this in, in argument, but uh, uh, somewhere between 75 percent and 85 percent of the people covered by the Warren Act are not governed by any collective bargaining uh, uh, relationship. Uh, the purpose of the Warren Act is to give those people not a chance to work out a private settlement, as Justice Kennedy has already pointed out, but uh, an opportunity to adjust and retrain uh, uh, by having sufficient notice. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that the Warren Act generates uh, a, a notice to the affected community, uh, which is so far removed from any uh, conception of uh, the NLRA as to have lost all touch with it. The fact of the matter is, is uh, as this Court has recognized, albeit in the preemption context, uh, but uh, equally to the point here, that there are two very different classes of uh, labor legislation, labor standards legislation, which uh, redounds uh, to the benefit of 
all employees and sets norms that are non-waivable uh, and are the product of uh, the rules of the state and the collective bargaining system, which aims uh, to add a layer of protection and to foster a private resolution uh, uh, system. The WARN Act, like the Fair Labor Standards Act, like the Portal to Portal Act, which is referred to uh, in the legislative history here, is a labor standards statute which generates the kind of court litigation which has always been for damages, which has always been covered in the range of situations by statutes of limitation of two to four years, not the kind of statute of limitation in the NLRA, which has a particular uh, private uh, agreement, private resolution system in mind. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Gold. Uh, Mr. Stewart, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to begin by touching briefly on two observations which have been alluded to in the earlier portions of the argument, but that I think are especially crucial to the disposition of this case. And the first is that in determining whether the NLRA and the Warren Act are analogous for purposes of limitations borrowing, the question is not whether the similarities between the statutes outnumber the dissimilarities, but as Mr. Gold has mentioned the question is whether the statutes are similar with respect to those features which would be especially relevant to the choice of a, an appropriate limitations period. And the second point I'd like to allude to is one that Justice Ginsburg uh, mentioned. That is, it's not simply coincidence or a fluke in this case that the actions filed would be timely under all of the statutes of limitations proposed except for that afforded by the NLRA. Statutes of limitations on the order of two to three to four years are far more typical with respect to the filing of civil actions than is the six-month period uh, established by Section 10B. And I think that should lead the Court to conclude that there were some fairly unusual factors at work that led Congress to adopt the 10B limitations period, and the question is whether those factors are present in Warren Act suits as well. And I think the two crucial factors are, first, as Mr. Gold mentioned, Section 10B, the NLRA generally, is particularly concerned with not labor law in general, but with the process of collective bargaining and private dispute resolution under the terms of a CBA. And I think the contrast between Del Costello and Reed is telling. This Court borrowed the NLRA limitation, the Section 10B limitations period, when it was dealing with a case that implicated private dispute resolution under the collective bargaining agreement. In Reed, it was dealing with the general field of labor law. It was even dealing with an area in which some of the primary conduct prohibited by Title I was also an unfair labor practice under the NLRA. But the Court said in Reed that because the case did not touch upon the formation of collective bargaining agreements or the private resolution of disputes thereunder, borrowing of the 10B limitations period was inappropriate. I think the second point that's crucial in determining why six months is appropriate in the NLRA context is that the filing of an unfair labor practice charge requires simply the filing of a charge with an administrative body. The NLRB then takes responsibility for determining whether a complaint should be filed and for prosecuting a complaint if one is pursued. And by contrast, a situation in which the responsibility is entirely upon the private litigant to file suit in federal district court, the choice of such a short limitations period is less appropriate. We recognize from Del Costello that we can't make the argument that 
borrowing a limitations period established for an administrative charge is never appropriate for filing a suit in court because Del, Del Costello held that sometimes it was. But I think if we look at the body of federal employment statutes generally, we see a pretty clear pattern. Those statutes like the NLRA, Title VII, the ADEA, which require a litigant to proceed by filing an administrative charge, typically contain periods for doing so on the order of three to six months. Statutes, by contrast, such as the the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Portal to Portal Pay Act, which require a litigant to proceed by filing a suit in court, typically contain limitations period on the order of two to three years. And I think this body of law reflects a congressional judgment that typically a litigant should have more time when the responsibility is entirely upon him to pursue his claim by means of filing a judicial action. And the final thing I'd just like to touch upon, as Mr. Gold said, is that we think that the Court's presumption of state law borrowing has worked well. We think that borrowing state law in this context would not create problems of disuniformity and unpredictability that are are so extreme as to outweigh the presumption. But if the Court was particularly concerned with uniformity, we think that there are better ways of accomplishing that than by borrowing the NLRA statute of limitations, such as borrowing the limitations period in the Portal to Portal Pay Act or establishing a generic characterization of Warren Act claims that would apply in all states. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Stewart. May I just ask one question? Assuming we agree with you, should we leave the judgment below in the uh, in its present state, or would, should we send it back to the court and say, pick a particular statute? Shouldn't uh, it, it's true this this case is going to be uh, uh, this this case on on that assumption would be upheld no matter which of the Pennsylvania statutes might apply. But shouldn't uh, uh, for the future shouldn't there be a, a a clear rule down in the federal courts there? Well, I, with respect, I don't think it would — that the proper disposition for this Court would be to send it back to the Court of Appeals and ask them to pick a statute. That is, for the sake of predictability, the, the Court obviously doesn't grant cert in a large number of cases, and when it does so, it typically wants to establish rules that will guide a lot of lower courts. So it might be appropriate for this Court to pick the proper rule. But if this Court decides that it doesn't want to do that, then I think the proper disposition would simply be to say that the, sta- the suit would be timely under any of the plausible limitations periods and leave it at that. I I don't see a value that would be served if this Court didn't make the choice but ask the Court of Appeals to do so. Thank you, Mr. Stewart. Uh, Mr. Fearson, you have a a minute remaining. Quickly, I think it's important first to note that when we talk about a six-month statute with respect to the Warren Act, frequently it's going to be a lot more than six months. It's only six months if there's an absolute permanent plant closing. Otherwise, in the more complicated situations that have been referred to, for example, mass layoff situations, there has to be a six-month period of employment loss before the right accrues, so that, in essence, an employee may have as much as a year before they have to file suit. That's number one. With respect to Title VII being an administrative agency and having six months to file and you don't have to bring a lawsuit, you do have to bring a lawsuit within 90 days of receiving your right to sue letter from the EEOC. So that within the employment laws, there are a lot of short limitations periods and finally, there the administrative toils, and you've had at least some guidance about what to do. You haven't just not out there alone. Sometimes you are out there alone if it's the equal employment you have opportunity. To, you have to go first to the EEOC. Here, the employee, on your version, would have to go directly into federal court, not having gotten any guidance, any counseling, any aid from any administrative agency. 
But if, in, in both situations, whether you go to the administrative agency or you go to a lawyer to file suit, the critical, seems to me, the critical issue in a statute of limitations context is when is it that you know you have the right? And in, in both situations, you have to know you have the right within six months. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pearson. The case is submitted.